This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm your host, Jonathan. I hope you all enjoyed the last season of the podcast where we learned all about Iberia's crazy 11th century, as well as the goings-on of West Africa and the emergence of the Almoravids in the Maghreb and Sanhaja regions of Northern Africa, not to mention Rodrigo Diaz's story, the man they still call today El Cid. And believe me, I debated where to go next. And there's a lot of planning that goes into these decisions, believe it or not. And I decided to head back up to England as, well, number one, I couldn't wait to unfold the story of English resistance and William's succession to the throne. And two, stories that play out up north will send ripples as far as Constantinople, who during the 1070s, 80s, and 90s, well, was dealing with their own Norman conquest of sorts. Oh, and Sicily too, the oft-forgotten Norman conquest there. So I can't wait to get into this season, folks, but, but first let me urge you all to hit the subscribe button and even consider joining our Patreon group where we have access to the entire catalog of episodes, as well as bonus episodes each month. We just had a seven-part deep dive into Poland's rise to the European stage, something you won't hear here on the public episodes. And, and now, and here's the announcement, Patreon supporters, now we're starting a new series of episodes that will directly support these public episodes as we unfold the decades-long Norman conquest of England by detailing the goings-on in both Scotland and Ireland during this time. Now, that's the glue that will really hold this whole season together. So if this interests you and you believe in what I'm trying to create here, please consider becoming a supporting member on Patreon. Every penny feeds right back into the creation and production of this show. Okay, okay, I'm excited and I hope you are too. Enough business. Today's episode, episode 72, is entitled An English Catastrophe. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. The moment the arrow penetrated the eye socket and brain of the king, future generations would attest with absolute certainty, the history of England changed irrevocably. And not just England, mind you. Wales, Scotland, and the islands off the coast. Heck, even the Emerald Isle, some 60 miles across the Irish Sea. And one could fairly confidently state that the history of the entire world changed in that moment, though it would begin here, and slowly boil up several centuries for that promise to come true. But the fact of the matter remains, looking beyond the embarrassing simplicity of your high school history lessons, that world history was changed the moment King Harold Godwinson died on that battlefield near the tiny village of Hastings along England's southern shores. It wasn't an open and shut case. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Peter Rex, in his book, The English Resistance, The Underground War Against the Normans, quite effectively sums it up like this, quote, Hastings probably seemed less decisive in 1066 than it now seems to us with hindsight and did not result in immediate 
and complete submission. End quote. And that's pretty much the crux of this season. That one statement. And for good measure, Rex continues, quote, The Earls Edwin and Morcar had not been involved in Harold's defeat. London, a city of great size for the time, with a population of 20 to 30,000, could have been held, and the ships of the remains of Harold's and Morcar's fleets could have blockaded William while a second army was raised from shires not yet affected by the war and which had not yet even seen the Norman army. England remained in a state of suppressed rebellion. What was lacking was a unity of purpose, determination to resist, and any real agreement to unite behind an English king. End quote. Now, there were pockets of immediate resistance in the southeast right away, but again, without a central authority, they either fizzled out or were quickly put down as quickly as it was noiselessly in the records. Let's just say that in the wake of Hastings, the immediate wake, the next few weeks were of great consequence, but few details made it into the records. And speaking of the Hastings, you know, the Battle of Hastings itself, as we've said, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. All the way up until that fateful arrow careened over the battlefield, taking in the death and devastation below, ultimately reaching its pinnacle, and then falling in a trajectory that was almost divine in its perfection, reaching its target, unbeknownst to the archer who released it seconds before. Well, the, the whole bit with the arrow, by the way, it's mere legend, the best we can tell anyway. But the legend of the arrow is so ingrained in the culture and the histories that it almost doesn't matter if it was true or not. It ended in English catastrophe either way. Either way you look at it, King Harold fell on that battlefield and his brothers lay nearby fighting over his body and the, until they too fell. It's a tragedy fit for Shakespeare, to be honest. Now, we've already learned about the Battle of Hastings itself. If you're interested in a refresher, head back to episode 51, A New Age. But we need to ground ourselves in the moment once again, as it's, it's been more than 20 episodes since then, if you can believe it. King Harold Godwinson was at the helm of an admittedly exhausted force. It was not, or excuse me, it was also not exactly the same force he had fought alongside two weeks earlier, way up north, when he defeated both his brother Tostig and Tostig's ally, Harold Hardrada, at Stamford Bridge. On his way south, without knowing 100% William's arrival, barring some rumors, though he was well aware that it could happen at any moment, see, he had released many of his soldiers to return home to attend their harvests. I mean, it was October, right? And as soon as he arrived, he decided to saddle up and ride south with what forces he had available to him. You know, this one decision would play into a very precarious series of events that would lead England down a a different trail of fortune. Had he waited, he had Mercians and Northumbrians on their ways to London to, to ride with him against this Duke William. Many of these men were a part of a defeated force led by those same brothers, Earls Morcar and Edwin of Mercia and Northumbria, respectively. But they had collected themselves and were presumably motivated by the news of their king's defeat of Tostig and Hardrada days earlier. But it's no small feat to move an army in those days, let alone collect them and organize them. So they were running later than Harold would have wanted. 
Against his family's wishes, King Harold rode south without his stout reinforcements. And this is backed up by both John of Worcester and the E-Chronicle of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. If anything, to show a presence and deter much more looting and raising no doubt happening to his southern lands in Wessex and Sussex. It's also worth noting here that Harold Godwinson was thinking more than his coastal subjects, thinking of more than his coastal subjects, and the crucial goods they produced in their fields and, and processed through their shops. See, Harold Godwinson had a major stake in keeping Wessex and that Sussex region safe and secure, as he was a key landholder in those areas. These were largely, though not entirely, Harold's lands William was threatening. And William knew this. By the time King Harold arrived in Hastings, an area he held wide swaths of property, his reinforcements arrived in London, only to find their king failed to wait on him. So they hurried their forces southward. However, in the intervening day or two, Harold and William actually traded threats and opportunities for peace. Mark Morris, in his book, The Norman Conquest, The Battle of Hastings and the Fall of Anglo-Saxon England, writes, quote, William, we are told, offered to let Harold hold the earldom of Wessex if he resigned the kingship. Harold, rather less generously, promised to let William return to Normandy unmolested if he made reparations for the damage he had caused. End quote. Okay, so not quite the threat he gave the great Hardrada about giving him exactly six feet of English soil, though he was willing to give him inches more as he as he's heard that Hardrada was a bit taller than most men. I mean, come on, Harold. Seriously, one of the most badass examples of trash-talking in history, if you ask me. Those reparations Harold was referring to is a testament to the very clear destruction William's forces had already inflicted upon the southern English. And this is backed up by the famous Bayou Tapestry in a scene depicting a couple Norman soldiers setting a house aflame, a woman and presumably her son, inside in a panic. Now, there's no doubt that William's first tactic, after unloading his forces, that is, was to set upon a strategy, a strategy of terror. And King Harold wasn't having it. As Morris says, quote, In William's devastation, therefore, we can discern a deliberate attempt to provoke a fight. End quote. The date? The date was now October 14. The setting was dawn upon the hill with a lone gray apple tree at the top, in a place since just after the battle itself has been known to history simply as battle. Harold's army was still recovering from the intense march south, and William used such perceived exhaustion to his advantage. And well, again, we know the result. As dusk was nearing, William's success was doubtful, to be honest. Scouts had arrived telling him of an army approaching south to relieve Harold, and if he couldn't seal the deal here before sundown, then there's no telling what the next day would bring. With Harold relieved and his army free to encircle the Norman forces, well, it didn't look pretty. And William had lived a warrior's life since he was like seven years old. He was no slouch, and he was no fool. He pressed, knowing his own death was imminent if he failed to secure victory that very day. Well, again, one perfectly fortuitous arrow later, and King Harold lay dead. The biotapestry gives the scene significance without any celebration when it reads, quote unquote, here Harold was killed 
and the English turned in flight. This, just below a picture of a man holding onto an arrow protruding from his face, mind you. Now, Morris cites several chroniclers writing about this very moment. Baudry states, quote-unquote, a shaft pierces Harold with deadly doom. William of Malmesbury wrote, his brain was pierced by an arrow. And Henry of, or excuse me, Henry of Huntingdon said, quote, the whole shower sent by the archers fell around King Harold, and he himself sank to the ground, struck in the eye, end quote. Now, beyond Morris's examples, there are still others who refer to this arrow-in-the-eye legend. According to HistoryToday.com, it says, quote, The Norman chronicler Wace relates that during the battle, an arrow grievously wounds the king above the right eye. Harold pulls it out, but then so many Norman knights attack him that Wace cannot say truly who killed the king, end quote. Wace's take on it, so very similar, except for the detail of Harold pulling it out and then dying by the blade. The article later states, quote, Waste describes the effectiveness of the Norman archers, writing that their falling arrows struck heads and faces and put out the eyes of many, and all feared to open their eyes or leave their faces unguarded, end quote. Now, this particular article from, again, HistoryToday.com, mentions something quite fascinating, so I'll ask your patience for a minute. The author of the article, Martin Foyce, who's a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and author of the book The Biotapestry Digital Edition, so ebook, from 2003, see, Professor Foyce points out two scenes on the biotapestry specifically. The first scene shows the arrow in Harold's eye. The second one takes place immediately after the first and depicts Harold falling backward. With this in mind, we need to know that the biotapestry has undergone, especially in its earliest days, several revisions and updates. Foyce writes, quote, A close study of the embroidery stitching and pre-repair engravings reveals that at least seven modern arrows striking figures had been added all distinctly longer than their medieval counterparts. Such historical revision may also explain one final mystery of the Bayou Tapestry. The 17 empty stitch holes now running in a straight line from the head of the falling herald in the center of the scene. Did restorers add one more arrow here? And was it then removed because it contradicted Wace's report that Harold pulled the arrow out of his eye before he was killed? End quote. So this phantom line, you know, those 17 empty stitch holes that ran in a straight line from Harold's head into the center of the scene, you know, these, these holes had more meaning than an accidental restructuring of history. It might hold some greater significance to the mythology surrounding Harold's death. But I urge us not... I, I urge us all not to overlook such details in our histories as minor. Maybe I'm making a bigger deal out of it than it really is, but I firmly believe historians and students and enthusiasts of history play a very dangerous game when they dismiss a people's entrenched beliefs and stories, true or not. These beliefs and stories, even as simple as Harold receiving an arrow in the eye, have, in their own simple ways, helped form that group's psyche and 
and perspective about where they've come from. Regardless of these simple yet poignant statements in the records, even Morris admits there's simply no way to tell exactly how King Harold Godwinson died. Arrow wounds of any sort were very dangerous at that time. Well, really all the way up to the reports of in the 19th century U.S. Army, the ones they gave about the wounds inflicted during skirmishes and battles with Native Americans. According to HeritageDaily.com, quote, Bones exhumed from a Dominican friar in Exeter had, has revealed that arrows fired from a longbow caused injuries as deadly as modern-day gunshot wounds, end quote. Yeah. So arrows were certainly dangerous. Beyond that interesting, though, and yet horrifying tidbit, I found something of interest later in that same article. It said, quote, In the medieval world, death caused by an arrow in the eye or the face could have special significance. Clerical writers sometimes saw the injury as a divinely ordained punishment, with an arrow in the eye which may or may not have been sustained by King Harold II on the battlefield of Hastings in 1066, the most famous case in point, end quote. As a simple intellectual exercise, we can compare this arrow in the eye bit to the question, why would all of these deposed leaders get blinded? Now, blinding was a very common reward for being kicked out of power. But why? Well, could Harold's fate be symbolic of this literal practice of, bl- of blinding? I mean, even a thousand years ago, leadership held some of our own deeply entrenched beliefs in leadership today. For instance, I mean, I think it's safe to say we all want a leader who can plan ahead and, and see possible obstacles that may or may not come in the future. So we're prepared. Symbolically, could this be represented through the literal scooping out of one's eyes as well as that arrow in the eye depicted in some of the artwork? Just a thought. But again, arrow wound or not, (laughs) Harold did, in fact, die. So how he died is merely a matter of cultural curiosity, not specifically a historical one. Though it still holds significance, we shouldn't die on that hill, pun intended. So turning back now to the battlefield, Morris writes, quote, The night after Hastings was almost as terrible as the day itself. End quote. That's an interesting line. I looked up Morris's quoting of William of Malmesbury's passage depicting this aftermath, and yes, it's as terrible as the battle itself. <laughs> the 12th century chronicler, that is William of Malmesbury, stated, quote, This was a fatal day to England a melancholy havoc of our dear country through its change of masters, end quote. Now, William of Malmesbury was writing around the 1130s, very much in the sphere of Norman influence on England. So that's a gutsy call to make to write that, which is one reason that he's considered one of the greatest English historians since the Venerable Bede. Now, I had always heard the echo of the ancient Greek text, the Iliad, in the days after the Battle of Hastings, when Githa, if you remember, the dowager queen and mother of the slain king, entered the Norman camp and spoke with William herself about collecting Harold's body. Curiously, not her other sons, Leofwina's and, and Gerth's bodies, though. <laughs> but she, willing, she was willing to pay for his weight in gold, the legend says. But William refused. 
But William of Malmesbury, the chronicler, offers a different take on that same scene. He writes, quote, When his victory was complete, he caused his dead to be interred with great pomp, granting the enemy the liberty of doing the like, if they thought proper. He sent the body of Harold to his mother, who begged it, unransomed, though she proffered large sums by her messengers. She buried it, when thus obtained at Waltham, a church which had been built at his, at his own expense in honor of the Holy Cross and had endowed in canons, end quote. So, really goes against some of that legend there. But William of Poitiers concurred with William of Malmesbury, or rather, William of Malmesbury concurred with William of Poitiers as, as Malmesbury was writing many decades later, and Poitiers was William's biggest contemporary cheerleader. Either way, Poitiers, well... Well, let's let Morris describe the situation from Poitiers' entirely biased perspective. Morris writes, quote, So this is straight from Poitiers. Leaving the dead unburied, we are told, seemed cruel to the conqueror, who accordingly allowed any who wished to recover their relatives' remains to do so, but not the remains of Harold. As Poitiers and several other sources make the Make plain, the king's corpse was in a very bad state, strips stripped of all its valuables, and so hacked about the face that it that it could be recognized only by certain marks. End quote. I mean, it's it's just a barbaric scene, but Poitiers was still trying to make Duke William out in as best light as he could. And though he wasn't writing too many years after the battle, there is one text considered to be the earliest telling of the happenings at Hastings on that October day in 1066. The Carmen de Hastingai Proelio, assumed to have been written by Bishop Guy of Amiens within a year or two of the battle. So very, very contemporary text. And this text shares a considerably different take on William's purity of soul after the battle than Poitiers' take. So this is where it gets interesting, where the Carmen uh, pretty much goes against what Poitiers later was trying to maybe correct in the record. The Carmen says the following of William's thoughts on the English dead. It says, quote, The corpses of the English, strewn upon the ground, he left to be devoured by worms and wolves, by birds and dogs, end quote. Yeah, again, according to the earliest reports of the Battle of Hastings, quite contrary to William of Poitiers' incredibly biased take, says that William decided to let the bodies be left alone to rot, more or less, in, in dishonor. I mean, William's testosterone was still no doubt overflowing in the days after such a fight, but that's still pretty harsh treatment to the very people he expected to rule one day very soon, or at least there. Their, their family members. Now, in terms of Harold's body, the Carmen says, quote, Harold's dismembered body gathered together and wrapped what he had gathered in fine purple linen, and returning to his camp by the sea, he bore it with him that he might carry out the customary funeral rites, end quote. So wait, hold up. Harold's dismembered body gathered together? <laughs> and wrapped what he had gathered? That's horrifying if you, when you picture it. And it's a line that might have been the first to report that Harold was hacked into pieces by later chroniclers. Well, moving on, what, what were these funerary rites the Carmen spoke of, though? 
Well, we would like to assume that William would invoke customary Christian funeral rites and burial, but the Carmen mentions something interesting here that's also echoed in later reports too, by the way. Upon Githa's offer to buy her son's body, or what's left of it even, the Carmen says, quote, but the Duke infuriated, utterly rejected both petitions, swearing that he would sooner entrust the shores of that very port to under, to him under a heap of stones. Therefore, even as he had sworn, he commanded the body to be buried in the earth on the high summit of a cliff, end quote. This makeshift gravesite was given a simple stone as a marker, but it's since been forgotten. The stone marker, according to the Carmen, said, quote, By the Duke's commands, O Herald, you rest here a king, that you may still be guardian of the shore and sea. End quote. Now this, this headstone is, and story is just brilliantly awful when you think about it. This man, right, Harold Godwinson, a man who had served his previous king, protected the borders from the Welsh, as well as from his own brother, as well as a, from a Norse invasion led by this demigod of sorts, this loyal English nobleman. And no, I'm not forgetting some of the blemishes on the guy's career either, but this guy had just defeated his brother's invasion and defeated the Viking horde that came with him only to be killed by a force led by former Vikings and buried in a funeral pyre fit for a Viking warrior. Yes, the heap of rocks, as the Carmen said, the heap of rocks was one custom of Viking burial. It certainly was not a Christian one. The symbolism is almost too much to fathom. It was as if the Norse represented the old Viking age and the Normans maybe represented the some new evolved Viking age, a Viking age able to fully overcome England once and for all. And it's, it's, he was also the last Anglo-Saxon king. And the fact that the last Anglo-Saxon king was buried under the old dead Viking ways, those who died when that same king defeated the last remnant of the old Viking age, (laughs) either way, The simple symbolism of Harold Godwinson being doomed to an eternity of guarding the cliffs of southern England against a possible Norman invasion is enough of an insult in and of itself, considering the Normans had already arrived and conquered the kingdom behind him. Yeah, so this is where things get a little muddy on the legality of who was actually in power of the kingdom of England at the time, after the Battle of Hastings. See, King Harold II, Godwinson, was dead. That's not up for debate, obviously. And the Carmen states the following, quote-unquote, The Duke renounced the title of Duke and assumed the royal style. Interesting. But how could that be? See, on the continent, where William was obviously from, if you killed the king, it's, I mean, most places, it's assumed that you'd simply be accepted as the new king, the conqueror, Right. However, in England, they did things a little differently. If you remember the idea of the English Witan, it took a Witan to be called by the highest nobility of the kingdom, and the new king would be put up for a vote. In both cases, crowning 
was secondary, though the continental approach to this succession required a quick crowning to solidify the deal. But in England, a simple vote would do the trick, and the coronation was really just a kind of a party to celebrate it. So again, at this point, who was king? According to William, he probably assumed that he was the king by default. And his army no doubt agreed to that. However, while the English bodies rotted on that battlefield, some things were stirring in London that would fly in the face of William's assumptions. See, Morcar and Edwin, those earls, right? Days before, had arrived in London, heard the news of Harold riding ahead, passed through London only to hear of Harold's defeat and subsequent death. And this prompted them to quickly do an about-face and hightail it back behind the walls of London, where they summoned a quick witton to figure things out. Well, at that point, English nobility had been hacked to pieces, just like their king, unfortunately, and there wasn't much of a witton left. King Harold Godwinson was dead alongside his two fiercely loyal brothers, Earls Leofwina and Gerth. Along the way, Earl Morcar of Northumbria met up, was, met up with his brother, Earl Edwin of Mercia, and they passed through Earl Waltheof of Huntingdon's territory, gathering steam for a stout defense of their kingdom. Those were pretty much the only three earls left in the kingdom, as East Anglia, Earl Gerth, Kent, Essex, Middlesex, Hertford, Surrey, and Buckinghamshire, Earl Leofwina, as well as Wessex itself, King Harold, were without representation at that witton. Now, without representation simply means their three earls were still rotting just outside of Hastings. Well, London had itself a royal guest riding alongside Morcar, Edwin, and Waltheof. That's right, Edgar Etheling, as the son of Edward the Exile, who was the son of the legendary Edmund Ironside, was the last remaining male of the House of Wessex. Thus, Edgar Etheling was voted by the Witton as the new king of England. <laughs> Clear as mud, right? So who was it? Was the conquering William king? Or was Edgar Etheling king? Who had the most legitimate claim in late October of 1066? And do you go by English custom? Or do you go by the conquering Norman's customs? Well, it kind of depends on who you ask, I suppose. Morris writes, quote, There was no rule that said the man who killed a king must automatically replace him, nor was William in any position to march on Westminster, end quote. So regardless what William thought, he was only a king in his own mind at this point, I guess. Or to offer William a bone here, he could, he could have been king of Pevensey and Hastings, but nothing else really. Morris states, quote, the truth was that, apart from Pevensey and Hastings, every town and city in England still remained to be taken. End quote. And therein lies the stirrings of what's to come. And what's to come began to rear its ugly head in London. Morris continues, quote, In London, for example, the streets were teeming. A crowd of warriors from elsewhere had flocked there, says Poitiers, in a more prosaic mode, and the city, in spite of its great size, could scarcely accommodate them all. Some of these men were doubtless the troops summoned by Harold that had not yet arrived by the time of his premature departure. Others were survivors from Hastings, the obstinate men who had been defeated in battle, 
as the Carmen calls them. Their collective mood was determined and defiant. End quote. Now, in the next passage from the Carmen, we need to remember that the word freedom is used relatively here, but it, it mentions, uh, quote, their hope of being able to live there in freedom for a long time, end quote. And even Poitiers concedes that, quote, it was indeed their highest wish to have no king who was not a compatriot, end quote. Now, with that in mind, what about Edgar Etheling's claim? To be completely honest, he was the only person who fit the bill of a legitimate English heir to the throne of England. Again, he was the only member of the House of Wessex left. He was unfortunately, well, he was unfortunately only 14 years old in 1066. But I mean, at this point, who's really going to squabble about such details? He's just a couple years off of majority. Yet, Archbishop Eldred of York secured the Earl's votes, and just like we said earlier... Edgar Etheling, by the Witan, was voted as King Edgar II of England, though no coronation followed yet. But between the arrow in the eye of King Harold and the inexperience of youth blinding the ambitions of the teenage King Edgar II, well, England was essentially a kingdom of the blind, having no idea where they were going or even how to escape the tragedy that had befallen it. There would be no Edmund Ironside or Ethelstan Etheling to keep the unity of the kingdom alive and intact. Though understandable, it's worth noting that during that time in London, with William's march northward imminent, Edwin and Morcar weren't thinking solely of the kingdom either. No, they took the opportunity to whisk their dear sister, Queen Eldgith, back up north to the safety of either Mercia or Northumbria, and stay tuned to the next episode to see what they do next. So with such a quick turnaround in London, the news simply didn't have the time to travel to Hastings yet, and William had decided to wait for a formal surrender from the remaining nobility. The Carmen stated that he stayed there for a couple weeks, but Morris quotes the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which says, quote, When he realized that none were willing to come to him, he marched inland, with what was left of his host, end quote. And this is where we leave it for this episode. William, not knowing that England had already selected and named its new king, pushed northward toward London and toward a surrender that if it wasn't going to be offered, then it would be one he would definitely take by force. On the next episode, we focus largely on the lands in and around London, as well as some of the interesting goings-on around the island as news of Hastings reached far and wide. I can't wait to tell you about it. 